Um, and one more good morning. Why don't you join me in prayer? I'm going to pray for our time in the Word at this point. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the God who so longs for your people to dwell with you and delight in you that you come down to rescue us. That through your work, through your delivering work, we are no longer slaves to fear. We can be called children of the living God. And so, Lord, we now turn our attention to hear from you in your word. We ask that, we ask that you would speak to us powerfully knowing that your scriptures were breathed out by you for training in righteousness. They're profitable um, unto every good work, even unto salvation. And so I pray that your word would accomplish so much more than my words could. And Lord, I pray that you would fill me and lead me and guide me with your spirit so that I would only say what would make most of Jesus. God, I do pray amidst the many things that are on our hearts and our minds, the things that we have brought into this room, that you would still us that you would help us be silent before you, knowing that we need nothing more than to hear from the God of all eternity, and you are speaking when your word is proclaimed. So, Lord, please allow your word to be our rule in teaching and in all of life, your spirit to be guiding us, your glory to be our great concern, and your son our ever-increasing joy. Lord, we ask that you would accomplish all of this for the good of your people and the glory of your name. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys ever met someone famous? Has there ever been near to someone you, you revered for so much growing up? What was that like? As someone's saying yes up here. When I was 10 years old, I got to meet one of my athletic heroes, like up close and personal. And here's how it happened. So my brother and I, 10 years old, 8 years old, were in San Antonio visiting my aunt. And she knew we were huge San Antonio Spurs basketball fans. Of course, the tiny little white kids would adore the 7-foot tall, uh, incredible athletes of that time. And so we made my aunt get us to the game long before anyone else showed up. We were like the first ones in the Alamo Dome. We were that excited. And the stadium attendants, they saw our excitement, and they knew we just like couldn't contain ourselves. So they asked us, hey, you guys want to like, stand next to the players during starting lineups? <laughs> what? Texas is a great place. <laughs> and so, of course, we did. Of course, we did. We got to stand as the, yeah, picture this, two, a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, little white kids, next to our athletic heroes, the, the twin towers of the time, Tim Duncan and David Robinson. As the lights go down, the crowd goes wild, and their names are shouted. And we couldn't believe how much that encounter changed us. See, we got near to someone who was great, and we we knew about these guys before. But when we were high-fiving them, and they were laughing, they were sweating on us, it was like the pregame warm-ups, it changed us. It made us even greater fans, and then it made us want to leave and tell everyone about the San Antonio Spurs. So if you ask me today who's my favorite team, it'll all be because of that one moment. A nearness to greatness changed me. I was drawn in and then sent out to speak of the San Antonio Spurs in so much of a greater way. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 12, we hear of the 
even the best encounter of nearness to greatness. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 12, Moses has an encounter with the living God. If ever you were to meet someone famous, this would be the day. And you can, uh, as you can imagine, this was this sort of captivating, invigorating, life-altering moment for Moses when he gets to uh, communicate with the God who is high and holy but descends to dwell amidst a burning bush. And so as we resume our story in Exodus chapter 3, which is on page 45 or 46 of the Bibles under your chair, I invite you to keep your Bibles open during this time. As we resume this story from 3,500 years ago, we are set on, with a focus on the God who saves, the God who redeems, delivers his people so that they would dwell with him and delight in him, brings slaves out of spiritual and physical bondage, in order that they would know and enjoy him. And so I invite you to listen today to the big idea that the, the story in Exodus 3, verse 1 to 12 has for us. And that big idea is that God draws close. God draws close. He comes near to us. The greatest of all time becomes near to us in this burning bush now, and eventually Jesus Christ. And the question the text answers for us, why does he do this? You ever wonder why? Why does God draw close? Well, there's two answers in this text. He wants to reveal his identity and his activity. He wants us to know him and then follow him, to experience him and then go speak of him. So let's begin in verse 1 to 6, where we hear of God's identity, God drawing close to let us know who he is. And we'll start quickly in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. All right, so it's a pretty shocking. It seems like a tame start, but this is a shocking start to chapter 3. And here's why. The end of chapter 2 said this. God hears, he sees, he knows, he remembers his covenant. You think he's going to act. You would anticipate chapter 3 opens up with... And then they were delivered, and Exodus ends. (laughs) The next 37 chapters aren't necessary. But no, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father Jethro. It's just another day at the office for the man who was promised to be the deliverer. This gentleman Moses is out in the middle of the desert, Midian, While God's people, Israel, are suffering under the most oppressive of physical slavery in Egypt, God said, I hear, I see, I know, I will deliver. And so at this point, we are asking, why is the deliverer in the middle of nowhere and his people still in bondage? It's a question. Here, Moses is almost 80 years old. Almost 80 years old. He's too poor to have his own animals. Whose flock is he tending? Jethro, his father-in-laws. You think that'll humble you, working for your father-in-law at age 80? And yet, God was up to something in Moses' life. God was doing something in this prolonged desert season. You guys ever struggle to believe that God is doing something in your life during the desert seasons? 
During all those times of, God, why am I here? Why is my job still so bad? Why is my marriage still so longing for, for correction and health and healing? Why is this physical ailment not gone yet? See, we don't always know why God is doing what he's doing, but we do know he's active and never absent. We do know that he's moving, even if he's not explaining. And let's remember what God was doing in hindsight for Moses during the desert season. What did he do between the age of 40 and 80? He humbly shepherded sheep in the wilderness. What did he do between the ages of 80 and 120? He was called to shepherd God's people through the wilderness towards the promised land. You think God had a purpose? You think God had a plan? It's no wonder that when we get to Psalm 90, the church, we gather to pray this morning, we listen to Moses' words in Psalm 90, verse 1 to 2. The kind of perspective, the Monday morning quarterbacking, so to say, that he had on his life looking back. You know what he says in Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. For ever, before the mountains were formed or ever the earth was made, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. I don't know why God does what he does when he does it, or why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. But I do know that God is the everlasting God. God is the one who took a humble man, shepherding his father-in-law's flock for 40 years in the middle of nowhere, and then sent him back to Egypt eventually to shepherd his sheep through the wilderness to the promised land. And here he is, doing what any wise shepherd does, takes them to the other side of the mountain, Horb, at that time just known for grass and lush greenery. Good choice, Moses. But it would become later known as Mount Sinai, the place where God would show up with his people. And listen to this very first encounter of God with his people in verse 2 and 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Don't lose how surprising this must have been. Just another day at the office. And then suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Verse 3, And Moses said, as if you could say anything else, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. God shows up in a flame of fire. Have you ever been around a campfire, or you, you know, you do the Carterville thing in the fall, you do brush fires, get rid of your leaves. You know that fire... This was new to me. I'm sorry. In the city, you know what we set fires for? When sports teams win championships, we do them in the dumpsters. I called the fire department on my neighbors. No joke. My neighbors are not here right now. This is not in the sermon. Excuse me. They were burning their leaves in our shared driveway. 20 feet from my window, I see flames of smoke. I call the fire department. They show up. They laugh at me and say, sir, this is what we all do. (laughs) Where in the world am I? (laughs) Yes, laugh at my expense. I know, I know. Fire can be alluring and captivating and normal to some, but for many, many, it is scary. And here's why. Fire is powerful but not controllable. I know that. I don't know if you guys do. (laughs) Fire is powerful. Let's bring it back together. Bring it back together. 
Fire is powerful, but it's not controllable. No matter how pretty it is, no matter how nice that s'mores or hot dog roast is, fire is powerful, but it's not controllable. And so it's no accident that God shows up in a symbol that we understand him, not in completeness, but we understand enough to know that God is powerful, but he's not controllable. See, if we are to have a right perspective on the greatness of God, we must never think we're like him, uh, except for the fact that he's so different, so holy, so unique, so different from us. And he wants Moses to know that by showing up in a flame that doesn't consume the bush. Moses had never seen this. This is totally unique, totally different. And God's going to unpack his character for Moses in verse 4, 5, and 6. Specifically, we're going to see more about God, that he is loving, that he is holy, and that he is eternal. He's not just a speaking flame. He is all of these things that he shows to Moses first in verse 4. When the Lord saw... Please turn back to verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned... When Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Here I am. What's going on? Moses doesn't have a hearing problem. <laughs> God doesn't need to say it twice to get his attention. What God is doing is he's using a Hebrew term of endearment. When you would say someone's name twice, it's like the kindest of all greetings. Like saying, I'm so excited to see you. I like you. I love you. I'm glad you're here. That must have been so encouraging for Moses. Moses, Moses, from the angel of the Lord. He's hearing words of God loves you before you chose to love him. God is the initiator of love. And so Moses excitedly says, Here I am. Here I am. He's probably longing to run close to God. He heard that God loves him. I want to come close. But first, God warns. The invitation will come, but first the warning. And here's why there's a difference between the holy God and the unholy Moses. Listen to verse 5. Then he said, Do not come near. This is God speaking to Moses. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Wow. I love you, but this is a holy place. Don't come near. It's for Moses' protection. The ground and the God who occupies this ground is holy. He is different. He is perfect in purity and majesty. This is what God wants us to know about him. That the God who is in the heavens and does all that he pleases now descends in a bush that's not consumed. And yes, I love you, Moses, but you can't come near until something changes. Until you take those sandals which symbolize the filth of your heart, take them off to be brought near to me. It would be like someone here working out in the middle of your nowhere Macanda yard all day long, doing what you do, and then trying to walk into a sterile operating room. Not a chance. You're filthy. They don't let dirt in the operating room. When God draws us in, he says, you can't come just as you are. Something has to happen to you. You need to be made holy. And here's why. See, all of us are not naturally holy. God has made us in his image to know, love, and worship him. But Romans 3.23 says, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
That's the bad news that makes the good news good news good. We have chosen to love and live for God's gifts and our desires more than what God created us for, which is to know, love, and worship Him. And God calls this, by definition, sin. We've fallen short of holiness. We need a way to take the sandals of our sin off and to be given the perfect righteousness that would allow us to come near to the God who invites us in with words of loving affection. And here's the difference between Christianity and every other religion, including the religion of good works. See, every other religion in the world says this. You try real hard to clean yourself up and then hope real hard that God accepts you based on your works. Essentially hoping that God grades on a curve and as long as I didn't murder or rob the bank, well, I can think of a few other guys who shouldn't get in. But that's not what God says. God says, I am holy. In your sin, you are not holy. And the only way to be made holy is if I take your sandals off and give you perfect righteousness. And the good news of the gospel is God provides what he demands. God provides what you don't deserve and you can't offer. He provides what he demands. And this is how he does it. He sends his holy son to be a perfect sin offering. His holy son, Jesus, comes to live the life that you and I have failed to. The life of sin. And then his holy son, Jesus, takes our place on the cross. He dies the death that your sin and my sin deserves. The sin that would otherwise forever exile us from God in his presence. See, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, at the cross, we see the love and the holiness of God meet in one perfect union. And we hear of it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This was what love and holiness looks like combined. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know how much God loved you? More than just Moses, Moses. God loved you so much that while you were still sinning, he sent his son to die for you. Has that love hit you? Has that love really hit you? And the story doesn't end there. The greatest story of all time, the love of God for his people doesn't end with a death. See, Jesus did live and then he did die. And for three days, it looked like that might be the end. That it might be a tragedy, not a victory. But after three days, Jesus got up from the tomb. The greatest news of all time is that the one who's lived and then died for you also rose for you. The one who died to pay your penalty now lives and reigns to break the power and the presence of sin from you. To bring you near to him. To say, you, Moses said, here I am. Here I am, God. I'm ready to come close. The only hope that you and I have for being able to say, Here I am, God, and being accepted is through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who lived, died, and was raised on your behalf to to do what you can't do and offer you what you don't deserve. Relationship with the holy and loving God. You and I can say, Here I am, God, not because of who we are or how I am, but because of who he is for me. See, there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved except Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul?
Guys, we're not playing games here this morning. We don't gather on Sunday mornings to pat each other on the back and, and go off and have a great week. We gather because Jesus actually came to live the life we failed to. To die the death our sin deserves. And then to be risen to give us new life. The assurance that we greatly need. These words from a loving and holy God drawing, us here, drawing close to us and drawing us in. Have you believed in him? Have you given him your sin? Have you received his forgiveness? He is loving, he is holy, and he is eternal. Verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God traces his lineage back farther than we can trace any lineage. Yeah, of course he's citing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way back to the creation story in Genesis. But Hebrews 13 tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Revelation tells us he is the one who was, who is, who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega. God is eternal. Some things change. God doesn't. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Pretty clear from God. He is eternal. He is loving. He is holy. He is eternal. The question I have for you is, is this the way that you approach God? Do you have the right approach to understanding who God is? See, Moses did. How do we know it? He hid his face. He bowed. He was in this posture of reverence, adoration, knee-bowing, adoration, because he got a glimpse, a partial glimpse, of how powerful but uncontrollable the most eternal, holy, loving creature of all, all time is, God himself. See, so much in our lives goes wrong when we forget who God is when we have too low a view of who God is. You know what gets me up in the morning on Sunday mornings and every day? Is hearing about the God who is holy. A gravity and a gladness in light of who He is and what He's done for us. So overwhelmed by the God of the universe would long to say, Moses, Moses, and offer a way for us to say, here I am. And so glad that He does it through Christ Jesus. See, Jesus has not come to live, die, and be raised just to be your friend, just to be your homeboy, just to be your genie. Jesus has come to be your Savior, to be your Lord, the one who offers you eternal life and then commands that you follow him because he is the only one who can offer eternal life. Is this how you view God? See, God draws close so that you would know him. And then he draws close so that you would follow him by believing in him. Let's look in verse 3, uh, verse 7 to 12. God draws close to show us his identity. And then God draws close to reveal his activity. We'll look specifically at verse 8 to begin. This is what God has come to do. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Dr. Eastman crushed each of those names, by the way. He did phenomenal. Not the easiest of passages. What is God doing? He's not coming to clean the people up. He's not coming to give them a pat on the back. He's not coming to say, hang in there. He's coming to deliver. 
He's coming to rescue. A complete rescue. Out of Egypt. Out of Pharaoh's slavery. He's going to take them out of brick and mortar. Long days of hardship. He's bringing them to a good land. A broad land. Milk and honey. That beats brick and mortar every single day. God has come to rescue. And there is no shadow of a doubt about what he's up to. And he is going to do it incomplete. And in verse 12, we're going to see why he does it. What's his motive in all of this? God is coming to deliver his people so that they would dwell with him and delight in him. That he's delivering so they would dwell with him personally and delight in him joyfully. We get that in verse 12, the second half of it. He tells Moses, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You shall serve God on this mountain. You hear serve, I hear serve. We think work. Well, they're working in Egypt for Pharaoh. Why would they want to keep working? The word serve has a different connotation in the Hebrew. The word serve does mean to give yourself completely to someone and doing whatever they ask, but it's also a word used for worship. It's an enjoying of someone, and what you're doing for them is actually enjoyable because it's for your good and what they ask you to do, what they've made you to do. God says, I'm going to deliver you to worship me on this mountain. I'm going to deliver you so that you would dwell with me, that you would delight in me. Worship is really our delight in God. He wants us to know him so intimately that we would then enjoy him completely. A deliverance to dwell with and delight in him. How does knowing God's goal that we would dwell with and delight in him change the ways that you approach God. Here's what I mean. Many of us, we're tempted to approach God and say, God, here's my checklist of needs right now. I'm going to run through them. I hope you're listening because I'm going to go real fast. I got a lot. Will you solve all of these for me? And it's not bad. I go to God with all of my needs because he tells me to and because I trust him. But God has made me to find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in his right hand. What God has been about since creation was a people who live with and commune with him. Back in the garden, that happened. Sin has marred our ability to do that. He sent his son, Jesus, who left eternal comfort to come and walk amongst us spiritual exiles to then rescue us out of spiritual slavery. And he promises to bring our new home, the new heavens and new earth, down one day. And at the chief center of that new heavens and new earth is this promise in Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. I will dwell with my people, and my people will dwell with me, and I will be their God. God wants us to be with him. He wants us to enjoy him. You've been designed for delight, not demands. You've been designed to delight in God, not just demand things of him. How does this change the way that you approach God during the week? How might it invite you to linger in the word and in prayer? How might it invite you excitedly to open up your Bible and and hear what God is saying to you, knowing that these are his words for you, and in this speak with him as a child who so longs longs for and loves their heavenly father that you just enjoy being around around him? I'd be so disappointed, and regularly am right now, my three-year-old, he just demands lots of things from me. It can be tiring. I just long to hear, Daddy, I love you. And when he says it like every other week, I appreciate it. A lot. It means a lot to me. 
How much do you think God longs to hear, I love you. I'm so thankful for you. I have no greater joy in life than being with you. Anything in this world, no greater joy can supersede the joy I have in you. No hardship in this life can extinguish the delight I have in you. One day I'm going to dwell with you face to face, free of sin, sorrow, suffering. And I know that to be the case because Jesus got up from the tomb and he says, everyone who's in Christ will also get up from the dead. So I have that joy. Unfading, undefiled, imperishable inheritance. And so now I delight in you. I dwell with you. So what motivated, what moved God to do this? His compassion. Compassion for his people. Look at verse 7 and 9. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I know their sufferings. How good is that to hear this morning? Are you in suffering? Are you not in suffering is the better question. God says to his people, I know their sufferings. And now, behold, verse 9, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. God sees. He knows. He hears. He's compassionate. He is a helper. He's not heartless. He has come down to deliver, to dwell with him, all because he loves us and he's moved by our sorrows and our sufferings, just like he longs for us to know his love through faith in Christ Jesus. As Jesus said in Matthew 9, when he looked on the crowds, he said, I feel compassion for them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God has come down to give us a great shepherd in Jesus so that we would know his compassion. And now, how's God going to accomplish this? Well, his plan is a mediator, a deliverer, and his name is Moses in Exodus. Verse 10, he's speaking to Moses, the 80-year-old shepherd who's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Unsurprisingly, Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? All right, let's pause. Put yourself in Moses' shoes for half a second. You just heard verse 9. God's going to deliver. He's moved with compassion. You are probably like ready beyond anything for this to happen. I'm so excited. God's going to deliver. It's going to happen. When's it going to happen, God? But then your excitement becomes anxiety when you hear what the plan is. Moses, you're on deck. (laughs) You're up to bat. I'm sending you back to Egypt, the land that you were kicked out of. I'm sending you to get my children, Israel, the people who don't want you to be around them. I'm sending you to talk to Pharaoh, the king who wants to kill you because last time you were there, you killed one of his servants. I'm sending you back. To bring them out. Yikes. Who am I that I should go and be used to deliver your people? I'm 80 years old. I got nothing on the resume except a husband, father, and shepherd to my father-in-law's sheep. Who am I? And God answers his fears. And God gives us the the answer to our fears in verse 12. 
But God said, I will be with you. God said, I will be with you. Do you ever want God to accomplish something, but you just don't want to be the one he uses for it? (laughs) I can count no fewer than five times this week that's happened to me. Do you ever want God to accomplish something that you know is good? Maybe you see some oppression, you see racism, you see injustice in the world, and you're like, God, I hate that. I know it's opposed to what you've designed people to be like and do. I want you to bring about deliverance and healing and restoration, but send someone else. I don't think I can do it. Who am I to go and do that? I think you might be burdening my heart for that, but surely you haven't equipped my hands. You've just burdened my heart. Where might God be sending you that you're having a heart burden for, but a fearful equipping of your hands, like who am I? Moses moment when he so clearly is speaking to you and saying, go. See, the thing that keeps us from going is we often forget who's going with us. And we forget how powerful and uncontrollable he is. I will be with you changes everything. I will be with you changes everything. If the God who got up from the grave is going with you, why would we fear? See, these are the words that are uttered, echoed. You can't combine the words. These are uttered and echoed throughout all of Scripture when God's people are fearful of their calling. God says, I will be with you. Remember what he said to Jacob in his dream back in Genesis 28, verse 15? He says, Behold, Jacob, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to do. Remember what Jesus' last words to his disciples were? The command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. How does that end in verse 20? And behold, behold, pay attention, I am with you to the end of the age. I am with you to the end of the age. See, God promises to be with his people. He knows Moses can't do this. Moses knows he can't do it. God knows that whatever he calls you and I to, we can't do it on our own. And yet, in his sovereignty and his grace, he calls us in to send us out and be used for his purposes in the world. So I ask you, where might God be burdening you in order to send you out for his purposes? Where might God be sending you to go speak about this holy, this loving, this eternal God who's drawn near to you to then send you out so you would speak about him? And how does it change that you remember he's going with you? How does it encourage you to depend on him along the way? It might be as simple as, excuse me, it might be as simple as sharing the gospel with your colleagues, with your neighbors, with those who you see in your hobby groups week in and week out, and yet you don't know if they know the Lord, the goodness of enjoying and delighting with God. It might just be being a faithful parent, a faithful spouse, a a regular contributor, not just a spectator in the body of this local church. Where might God be sending you? And how does it change your perspective in knowing that he goes with you? Isn't it such good news that God draws close? See, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 12, we have seen the God who draws close. He descends to dwell amidst us and then sends us out to speak and celebrate him. 
And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to celebrate the God who has drawn close to us, not only in the burning bush, but eventually in Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh, and now invites us to worship Him in response. So here's what we're going to, here's what this time is going to look like. We will sing, we will praise to Him, we will have communion where we take and eat, remember His body was broken, His blood poured out for us. But before we jump into the songs and the communion, I I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to ask anyone that has prayer requests, like if, if you're just burdened with something in your own life, something for the church, and you want someone to pray for you, I'm going to invite you to stand up or just put your hand up. Just make it known, like, hey, I want some prayer. And I'm going to either, one of the elders or someone sitting near you, I'm going to invite whoever wants to come and pray for you to, to lay hands on you and pray for you. Prayer is our ultimate act of dependence, asking God to do what we can't. And so we're going to pray for each other during this time. Um, And then we're going to sing together, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and then we're going to feast in the fellowship hall together. So why don't, at this point, I'm going to pray for us. And if you have some way that you want prayer from someone else in the congregation, put your hand up, just stand up. I or someone else will come by and pray for you. And then Matt and the praise team will return to the stage and lead us in some musical praise. And the ushers will lead us in a time of communion. So, join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We we thank you, God, that you have drawn close to us. We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. We should be exiled from you forever, and yet you've come to rescue the exiles. You've come to take off the sandals of our sin. You've come to put on the garments of righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus. So that when we say, when we hear Moses, Moses, we can say, here I am, through him who came near to live, die, and rise on our behalf. And so God, help us to enjoy you, to delight in you, to never rush past this gift of dwelling with you. And Lord, set our hopes fully on the day when Christ returns and we dwell with you face to face, free of sin, sorrow, suffering. And as we wait, we celebrate you. Turn our attention and our hearts towards you now. Let us be captivated by this powerful but uncontrollable and yet loving, holy, and eternal God who showed up then and showed up that later in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.